שיר מספר 192 של רבי דוקטור סטו הלפרן. נושא Angels and Demons, The Akeda, The Exodus, and a Pre-Rabbinic Midrash. Welcome everyone. You had 11 choices during this slot, and I thank you for choosing the right one. <laughs> so nowadays, if you're learning, you're learning Chumash, learning the weekly Parsha, for example, and you have a question. Sure, no problem. It's all good. Okay, I'm supposed to tell everybody, please turn off your cell phones. I don't take it personally. Okay, so if you're learning the Parsha and you have a question, where is the first place, besides the VBM of course, where is the first place that you turn to for guidance? Rashi. Good. Correct. So where does Rashi get most of his material from? Midrash. Great, we're doing great. This is just a warm-up. It's going to get harder. Okay. When did Midrashim first appear? In written form. Before Rashi. You are three for three. We're off to a great start. Okay, so the first Midrashic collections, Vayikra Rabbah and Bereshit Rabbah, appear around 400 of the Common Era. So it's around the time of what? Mishnah, the, the Gemara, the Amoraim. Okay? So let's say if you were looking for guidance on the Parsha or on a biblical text before the time of Rashi, before the time of Midrashim, let's say... Theoretically speaking, you were a Jew living around, an Israelite living around the time of Bayechani, let's say specifically around the time of the Maccabees. Okay? Now this is going to be a little harder. What years was the Maccabees fight? 160. Good. Okay. Nothing's going to stump you today. This is very exciting. Okay, so from around 168 to 164, let's say fast forward a couple of years, around 170. So you're a Jew living in, in Israel in 170. And you want to learn something that comments on or that interprets the Torah. What would you learn? Right, so again, we're hundreds of years before there are Midrashim. There aren't even rabbis yet. Right? There, there are Prushim and Tzadukim and other sects. Okay, so what would people learn in those times? Any thoughts? Learn from the Rebbe. I don't know that there were a Rebbeim then. So they would learn from the Kohen. Nice, but were there any texts, any written books? Okay, so actually, there were many, many written books written during the time of the Second Temple, during the time of Bayachini, that scholars have classified as apocrypha, from the Greek word for hidden, and pseudopigrapha, from the Greek for falsely ascribed. Okay, so these two categories of books, Apocrypha and Pseudopigrapha, were written by Jews during the Second Temple period. Okay, they were Jews kind of like me and you, but kind of different. We'll get into that. And they wrote different genres of biblical style writings. Okay, so these Pseudopigrapha and Apocrypha, you could subcategorize them into three different genres. One is rewriting biblical stories, but in new ways. And we're going to look at an example of that today. Okay, so it's taking a story that we know and we love, and the ancient Jew in 170 BC knew and loved and retold in new ways. Okay, genre two, within the Pseudopigrapha and Apocrypha, are new tales told about biblical characters. Okay, what do I mean? For example, there are books from that time called 
the Testaments of the Twelve Tribes. Now, do we have a Sefer in Tanakh called the Testaments of the Twelve Tribes? No. But we do know that there were twelve tribes. Do we have a book called uh, the Psalms of Shlomo HaMelech as a Sefer Tanakh? No. Right, we don't have the Psalms like Tehillim, but there's a book like that that existed during the Second Temple time. How about in Sefer Daniel, does Daniel fight a dragon? No. But there is a tale from that time of Daniel fighting a dragon. So what I used, there used to be a thing that existed called DVDs. <laughs> so DVDs, when they existed, used to have bonus deleted scenes. So there would be the movie that was in theaters, and then for some reason you'd buy the DVD, and it would have these extra scenes that weren't in the original movie. Okay, so that's a way for those that recall such things, who are old like me, so they remember that there were these added scenes featuring characters that we knew but were not in the regular canonical movie, in that case, text in this case. Okay, so think of this genre as that kind of thing. These are new tales about known biblical characters. And then genre number three is stories told in biblical style but about different characters. Okay, so for example, you have books like Susanna, Tobit. Has anyone here heard of the books of the Maccabees? Okay, so those are told as if they're biblical stories, but they're not part of the canon. They're not part of Tanakh. Okay, so for those who are extremely interested, and I do mean extremely, for the low, low price of $300, you can buy a book called Outside the Bible, published by the Jewish Publication Society. Somehow I guilted my parents into buying this for me for my 30th birthday. And it has all of these texts, with running Jewish commentary, meaning modern scholars showing how these texts that were not included in Tanakh, that were outside the Bible, were written within and produced by Jews in Second Temple period. Okay? So, one of the favorite examples of scholars, and we'll see why it's a favorite, hopefully by the end of this year, with enough time to go to the parking lot, you will be convinced that this is your favorite too, is a book by the name of the Book of Jubilees. Okay? So the Book of Jubilees was written by a sectarian Jew or Jews, it's unclear, around the time of 170, so right before the time of the Maccabees. Okay? So this book was written by a sectarian Jew, not coming from the Prushim, not coming from the predecessors of the nice rabbinic uh, Jews that we come from. Okay? So this Jew kept a different calendar, completely different calendrical system than we do, but he was an interpreter of the Bible, the same way that Prussian would be interpreting the Bible, but he had his own very unique spin. Okay, so why is this book called the Book of Jubilees? Does anyone know? Right, Yovel. Because every story that the author tells over, he situates during a certain year of the Yovel cycle. So we'll see this inside. He'll tell a story and he'll say, this was during the Yovel cycle X, during year of Ishmitah Y, during month Z, v'chulei v'chulei. Okay? So... This book is particularly fascinating because what this book does is actually preserve and demonstrate what later become midrashic ideas hundreds of years later after there's a thing, a group called rabbis who are doing a thing called writing the Mishnah and the Gemara which has Agadah in it. There are midrashic motifs, what scholars call midrashic motif themes, triggers from the text that are picked up on already around 170 BCE by the author of Jubilees, and he comments in them, on them in very unique and interesting ways. Okay? So the book, by the way, 
Jubilees is a retelling of Sefer Breshit and part of Sefer Shemot. That's what it purports to be. It's a rewritten Bible that an angel told to Moshe and Harsinai. Okay, that's its frame. That's what it claims to be. An angel telling over to Moshe and Harsinai, Sefer Breshit and parts of Sefer Shemot. Okay, now why do scholars, including uh, James Kogo, formerly of Bar-Ilan University in Harvard, and Ari Mermelstein, a colleague of mine from Yeshiva University, and Michael Siegel from Hebrew U, they love this book because of the fun pre-Midrashic activity that it contains. So what do I mean by that? Jubilees, has anyone ever, let me take a step back, has anyone ever heard the idea that the Avot kept the mitzvot, even though they lived way before Harsinai? It's familiar to us, yes? Okay, so the first, the very first time this shows up in a written text is in this book. Okay, not only that, not only keeping the mitzvot, but actually, fascinatingly enough, they actually, according to Jubilees, kept the Chagim. Okay, so Jubilees, again, around 170 BCE, told stories in Sefer Breshi and Sefer Shemot, whereby characters that existed pre Harsinai already kept the Chagim, and something they did was the origin story for Echag. Okay? So now that we've loosened up a little bit with the easy ones, okay, what do you think is the origin story of Chag HaShavuot in the Book of Jubilees? Okay, if you had to situate each Chag in a founding narrative of a pre-Sinai event, specifically a character in Sefer Breshit, who do you think it was that created the holiday of Shavuot? And I'm going to stand here drinking coffee until you guess. Okay, I hear some Yosef, someone say? Yitzchak, maybe why? Why Yitzchak? He, he, was a, he was a farmer, so maybe tied into the idea of the agricultural being behind the holiday. What else? Any other guesses? I'm going to wait for at least two more guesses. So, low running away from Sodom, how would you connect it to the... <laughs> okay. Any other guesses? One more. I'll take one more. Okay, Sarah with, with the idea that she somehow was involved in baking challah. Okay. So unfortunately, we've now hit a part where you didn't get it right. It was bound to happen at some point. Okay. So what does the word Shavuot mean? Weeks. Correct. But it can also mean oaths i.e. a Shavua. Okay? So what is the first... If you were to be a early Midrashist, a pre-Rabbinic Midrash, and you were to say that I need to found the holiday, something pre-Arsinai, and the holiday is going to be called Shavuot, what would be the opening Shavua that you would say is the story that created Shavuot? So we've heard Eliezer, Avram, Brut, Ben, and Beterim. How about even earlier? Noah. Now, did you say that because you looked at the source sheet? That's okay. Okay, well done. Oh, you read Jubilees. Excellent. You cheated. Get out. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so now you can read source number one, Bigavrit or Banglit. You have it? Do you have it? Thank you. Okay, 
עוד כל ימי הארץ זרע וקציר וקור וחום וקיץ וחורף ויום ולילה לא ישמור. So it sounds like, if you were to paraphrase that, what's Hashem doing? He's, he's taking, a, taking a swear not to destroy the world again. So Jubilee is in chapter 6. If you don't trust me, you can look it up on the internet afterwards. Jubilee is chapter 6, verse 15. It says this is the founding of the holiday of Shavuot because it is the first Shavuot. Shavuot, rather. Okay, despite the fact that in source number 2, we know why the Torah tells us it's called Shavuot because Shavuot Shavuot uh, Shavuot, Shavuot, Tisparlach, etc., etc. Right? Because of the conventional understanding. So the unconventional pre-Midrashic uh, reading of Jubilees is that it's called that because of a Shavuot, namely God's first oath to Noach not to destroy the world. So fascinatingly, the book of Jubilees actually situates many other episodes in Sefer Breshit, some of which were just mentioned, as taking place on the Chag of Shavuot as well. Okay, now sidebar, we said that he keeps a different calendar than us. So to him, to Jubilees, Shavuot is actually the 15th of the month, like the other Chagim, just as a sidebar. Okay, so he situates Brit ben Abitarim, he situates Yitzchak's birth, all in the holiday of Shavuot. He makes it the major covenantal holiday. Okay, since the covenant with Noah, not to destroy the world, then the covenant with the Abrahamic family. What do you think is of benefit to this interpretation? Now, situate yourself in the mind of an ancient Israelite Jew living in 170 BCE, how's the, how's the political situation? Shvach, as we say in the academy. Okay? Shvach, the, the, the Greco-Romans are, are in charge. The Jews do not have political autonomy. So how might what Jubilees does by backtracing the covenantal holiday all the way to the time of Sefer Breshit give chizuk to his audience? Any thoughts? Okay, so it's suggested that by Ari Mermelstein that what's going on here is that if the Jews thought that they had broken the covenant with God, God was punishing them for breaking the Sinaitic covenant, that is why they lacked political autonomy, that would be a real downer. They would be very, very sad thinking that no end is in sight. Must be they haven't been keeping the mitzvot. That's why these bad things are happening. They broke the Sinaitic covenant. Therefore, they lack political autonomy and things will never look up. So here comes the author of Jubilees and says, don't worry, you didn't break the Sinaitic covenant because the covenant is actually built into the very fabric of the Jewish family. That if the covenantal holiday goes all the way back to the time of Noah and the time of Avraham, it is an unbreakable covenant and Hashem will never forget you. So this was the chizuk that the author of Jubilees is possibly giving to his audience by retrojecting these holidays earlier on. Okay, so that was all by way of opening frame. Today we're going to look at the origin story of a different Chag, the Chag of Pesach. Now, somewhat surprisingly, the origin story according to Jubilees of Chag of Pesach actually emerges from what episode in Sefer Breshit? So actually, the Akedah, Akedah Yitzchak. Why is that surprising? Because as good rabbinic Jews, descendants of the Prushim, we think the Akedah is associated with which Chag? Rosh Hashanah, which is tied in all the time in the tefillah of Rosh Hashanah. But actually, according to Jubilees, this is the founding story of Pesach. Okay, ready? This is going to be a wild ride. So hold on to everybody sitting down. Okay. Okay, so let's read. Raise your hand if you've read the story of the Akedah before. Okay, good. So this will be Chazara, or Chazara as we say in New York. Okay. So I'm going to read the first two psukim 
in Hebrew. It's very important that I read them in Hebrew. And then I'll summarize the rest in English. Follow along. Okay? Okay, now I'm going to skip to the English. So early the next morning, Avram saddles his donkey, and he, you could follow along in English or Hebrew, whatever is easier. He takes his two servants and his son Yitzchak. He splits the wood for the burnt offering. They go out for the place. After the third day, after the third day, Avram looks up. He sees the place from afar. He says to the servants, you stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go up there. We will worship and return to you. Avram takes the wood, puts it on Yitzchak. They take the fire stone and the knife and they walk together. Now Isaac says to his father, Avram, father. And he answered, yes, my son. And he said, here are the fire stone and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? So as a note, there's another book, not a $300 book, called But Where is the Lamb? by a scholar named James Goodman. And he goes through the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic interpretation of the Akedah story and all of the three major Abrahamic faiths. So for those who are interested, Ayin Sham. You know, Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. They walked on together. They arrive at the place. Then who calls out to Avram as he's about to slay his son? Who tells him to stop? An angel. Good. And he said, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. Avram looked up, his eyes fell upon a ram. What happens to the ram? Does not end well. And he gets shechted, and Avram names the place, and then Hashem gives him, an angel calls him a second time, and gives him a bracha. Okay? We know how the story goes. If you're reading this story, sitting here at these wonderful Tanakhi Meiyun, or if you're reading it, sitting it in a slightly less wonderful 170 BCE ancient Judea, what are the first two questions that come to mind when reading this story? Mamash, the first two questions. So how can he ask him to kill his son? What, what about, before you even get to what the, what the request is? Right, so to compound, to compound the difficulty... How could it be that he's killing the covenantal son? Good, but even earlier. Why did Idafka read the first psukim for emphasis? How does this story start? Very good. Okay. Your first question is, what things? What things? Okay. So does anyone know the notorious Rashbam on this pasuk? Anyone besides Rav Grossman know the notorious Rashbam? Okay, so what, sir, what is the notorious Rashbam on this pasuk? Okay, so the Rashbam, they don't teach us this in elementary school in America, that the Rashbam says the Akedah was essentially a punishment to Avraham for what is the previous episode right before. He gives over in a treaty with Avimelech, part of Eretz Yisrael, which he was promised. As punishment, he has to go through the experience of the Akedah. Very, very fascinating explanation. In other words, put that aside. It validates the question of when you come across a pasuk that says, and it was after these things, it begs the question, what things? Is it something thematic or is it something that comes before right immediately? Rashbam says it's what came before right immediately. We're going to think more thematic, or, or we'll see. Okay, what's the second question? And it was after these things that Hashem tested Avram. Sir. Why does Hashem need to test Avram? Okay? 
So is it fair to say that in, wh whenever you're reading a story, those are the first two questions that come to mind. What things and why? Okay, file that away. Now let's read a seemingly unrelated story, that of Makat Bechorot, the death of the firstborn. Okay, so now we're fast-forwarding all the way to uh, the cusp of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. Okay, let's look by way of background. Hashem says, el paro. This is Hashem speaking to Moshe and Perak Dalet of Shemot. Ko Amar Hashem bini bechori Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, now let's read, fast forward a few prakim. Shemot Perak Yudbet. Ve'ikro Moshe lechol zikne Israel v'yomar alehem mishchu u'kuchu lachem tzon lemishvachotechem v'shachatu ha'pasach. Okay, what is this describing? The Korban Pesach. Ka'achtem agudat e'zov u'tzvaltem badama sher basach Okay, keep going. Skip to Pasuk Chavzayin. Okay, what textual or I would say textual slash theological question would you have in reading this episode? Sir? Are you, are you giving the next year, by the way? You're fantastic. Okay. Very good. So what is the, what is the conflation here? What's confusing here? Who is, who or what is the mashkit. Is it, what are the choices? Is it God or some sort of demonic figure, some sort of malach? Okay? So there seems to be conflation between the mashkit. You see the contradiction? One pasuk makes it sound like it's Hashem. The Lord will pass over in English and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. Who is the destroyer Hashem? Is it not? Good. Okay, so now for the ending of this section. Let's read where Pesach Dorot happens. Once the Jews enter the land of Israel, we are told in Sefer Dorim, Shemor Chodesh Aviv, Ve'asita Pesach, L'Hashem Lokecha, Ki Bechodesh Aviv, Hotiacha, Hashem Lokecha, Mimtsrayim Lela, Vizavakta Pesach, L'Hashem Lokecha, Tzonu Vakar, Vakom, Asher Yivchar Hashem, L'Shakein, Shemo, Sham. Okay, where is the place that Hashem wants us to be bringing the Korban Pesach L'Dorot? Har Habayis. Okay, where is Har Habayah traditionally believed to be? What's its other name? Har Hamariah. Okay, so we've read now, we've read one episode, Akedat Yitzchak, and we've read Makat Bechorot and the description of the Korban Pesach. Are there any common themes between these two stories that have emerged? That is a leading question. Okay, so the Akedah was on Har Hamariah, which Pesach Ador is going to be, uh, which is the site of Pesach Ador. Okay, so one is the, the idea that the place is similar in both stories. What else? Yes, ma'am. Someone was supposed to be killed but wasn't. Can you be more specific about that someone? How would you describe the person or the entity? The chosen son. Right? B'ni B'chori Israel. I give you that Pesach for a reason, right? B'ni Israel described as God's chosen Son and Yitzchak is the chosen son of Avram. Okay, so you have the near death of the chosen son, and what happens instead of the near death of the chosen son? What is killed? 
a lamb or a ram, okay? And what is present in both stories? Some sort of conflation between an angel or a demon and Hashem. In the Akedah, there's Hashem giving instructions and an angel says stop. And we have this mashke, it's a demonic figure, and Hashem. Okay, so in both stories, you have these thematic similarities. Okay, you have the same place. You have an angel or demonic figure in Hashem, the near death of the chosen son, and instead a lamb or a sheep is shafted. Okay, so these similarities were noticed by the author of the book of Jubilees. And let's look at how Jubilees retells the story of the Akedah, connecting it to Pesach. Now, as an important historical footnote, the, the book was first discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There were, there were uh, fragments of it. And the first full text was actually discovered in Gez, which is Ethiopic. So we're now going Any native Ethiopic speakers here? No, okay. So I have the... Luckily for us, I have the English translation. Okay? So let's look inside at Jubilees' retelling of the binding of Isaac. Ready for this? It's a very good thing we're sitting down. Okay, on the left-hand side, here is the pasuk. Here's the canonical text. Ready? Tell me if you start noticing anything different when we switch to the right-hand column. Left-hand column. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Avram, and he answered, here I am. Okay, ready? So again, we're about to read a rewritten Bible, supposedly. Okay. And it came to pass in the seventh week, meaning of years, in the first year thereof, because I told you every story is situated by Jubilees in some year, in the first month in this Jubilee, on the twelfth of this month, there were voices in heaven regarding Abraham that he was faithful in all that he told him and that he loved the Lord and that in every affliction he was faithful. So it sounds exactly like the Pasuk, right? There's no difference between the Pasuk. So it remi- it's, there's no difference whatsoever. So it reminds me of a colleague of mine at, at uh, Yeshiva University, David Chatz, tells the following story. He says, uh, Chassid was once pressed for the idea of uh, Jewish uh, chosenness and the presumption that Jews are better than other people. So he was interviewed on TV, and the reporter says, do you believe that Jews are better than other people? And the chassid says, no, it's, it's not true. There's absolutely no difference between us and Lahavdil the Gayan. <laughs> so there's no difference, Lahavdil, between this pasuk and this retelling. Okay, so any thoughts as to what's going on here? So forget the year for a second, or just forget the year stop. First year thereof, in the first month in this jubilee, what is the first biblical month? Nisan. Good. Now, what day did this take place, according to Jubilees? The 12th. What's, what's Pshat, or what's pre-Rabbinic Midrash? Three days later, it's the 15th. Got that? Three days later, because it's a three-day journey, we know, to the mountain. So it's actually Machloket, Kogel, and, and Siegel went to start counting the three days. Is it landing on Erev Pesach? Or Pesach. In other words, is the Akedah supposed to be the Korban Pesach or the first day of Chag? Regardless, the point is clearly the same. He's trying to land you on Pesach, making the Akedah the origin story, if you will, for the Korban Pesach. Okay? Now, what else, what else is going on here? Any idea? Okay. So did everyone clap that? Okay, so let's, let's keep reading. The print, so... I'll just read that last sentence again. There were voices in heaven regarding Avram that he was faithful in all that he told him that he loved the Lord and then in every affliction he was faithful. And the prince Mastema. So Mastema, which scholars think means loathing, he is the leader of evil spirits and he's called Satan in other places of Jubilees. Okay, so Satan came and said before God, Behold, Avram loves Isaac his son and he delights in him above all things else. 
Bid him offer him as a burnt offering on the altar. Now we'll see if he will do this command and thou will know if he is faithful in everything wherein thou dost try him. Does that sound like anything to you? Eov. Okay, so here you have, in 170 BC, before the invention of computers, someone is doing what? What, is he, what would we call this in computer terms? Cutting and pasting one biblical story and transposing it to answer interpretive questions in another biblical story, just like hundreds of years later, who does all the time? Chazal. Okay? So, for example, who does... Uh, who gets thrown into a Kivshan Ha'esh according to Chazal? Avram. Who actually gets thrown into a Kivshan Ha'esh? The friends of Daniel. Okay, so our beloved friend and teacher, Shani Tarragon, once told the following story. She said that she was in a, uh, a cab in Israel and she was kibitzing with the cab driver and the cab driver says, what do you do? And Shani says, I teach Tanakh. And the cab driver says, I love Tanakh. And Shani, being a very good person, says, you know, what's your favorite part? And he says, Avram and Kivshan Ha'esh. And she's much nicer than me and she didn't have the heart to tell him that it's not there. Okay? So Chazal take a story from another part of Tanakh and transpose it onto a certain biblical, different biblical character. So you see that here, seemingly for the first time, taking a story about Eov and using it as a narrative expansion to the story of Avram to explain exactly like this fine gentleman suggested what question that we had. And it was after, So the whole time I misled you into thinking Devarim must mean things. But Devarim can also mean words. So Jubilees is reading the story and saying to himself, it was after someone said something, God felt the need to test Avram. And luckily for Jubilees, there was another story. There was another story where God is testing someone because someone says something, and namely Satan. So he sticks the figure of Satan into this story. Okay. By the way, for anyone who's interested, there's actually an entire book about Avram, the Midrash about Avram in the Kivshan Ha'esh called Avram B'Kivshan Ha'esh okay, by a scholar, Vered Tohar. And there she goes through showing how over time this Midrash had certain different manifestations, including during the time of the Crusades where the theme of Avram willingly going into the fire to sacrifice himself was enhanced and elaborated upon due to the historical circumstances of the time. Okay, so let's read the rest. And start counting with me. Ready? And the Lord knew that Avram was faithful in all his afflictions. For he had tried him through his country and with famine, and had tried him with the wealth of kings, and he had tried him again through his wife when she was torn from him, and with circumcision, and had tried him through Ishmael and and Hagar, his maidservant, when he sent them away. Why was I counting? So I'm counting Nisyonot. Why? Why am I counting that? Because we, as good rabbinic Jews, have a tradition then how many Nisyonot were there that Avram had? Ten. Now here there are not ten. There are seven or eight, depending on how you count. But what it shows you is the idea that Avram passed many tests is already attested to hundreds of years before the Midrash that we know. Okay, and the rest of the story pretty much reads around the same. You could look at it inside. So we have an answer to our initial questions. What Devarim... And why did Hashem need to test Avram? According to Jubilees, it was Mastima's words that led to the Akedah, which, by the way, we now have a date for, namely, the holiday of 
Pesach. By the way, lest you think Jubilees is completely coming out of La Field and giving Satan the inspiration for the Akedah, the Gemara in Sanhedrin on 89b, Petar Amudbet, has who suggesting the Akedah? Satan. Okay, there are all these, there are all these Gemaras and Midrashim that associate Satan as playing a role with Avram on the way to the Akedah, creating a lake for him to go through. Satan pops up telling Sarah about the Akedah. Right? The idea that Satan was somehow involved thematically with understanding the story actually shows up in the Gemara. Okay, now let's look at how Jubilees tackled Makat Bechoro. So on the left-hand side, we read as follows. For when the Lord goes through to smite the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, and the Lord will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. Okay, so now let's look at Jubilees' retelling. For on this night, the beginning of the festival and the beginning of the joy, you were eating the Passover in Egypt when all the powers of Mastema, there he is again, popping up when you least expect him, had been let loose to slay all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Paro to the firstborn of the captive maidservant in the middle, and to the cattle. So what is Jubilees doing here? Sticking in Masima to explain what difficulty that we had before. Who or what is the Mashrit? It's Masima. It's this demon. And this is a sign which the Lord gave them into every house, etc., etc., And it says, And the powers of the Lord did everything according as the Lord commanded them. It passed by all the children of Israel, and the plague came not upon them to destroy from amongst them any soul, either of cattle or man or dog. Okay? So, to explain the theological difficulty of who or what the mashkit was, mastema, problem solved. Now, if you have mastema at your interpretive disposal, okay, as a thing to insert to solve textual and theological difficulties in Sefer Shemot, without looking, no cheating, can anyone think of other challenging stories in Sefer Shemot that are notoriously hard to explain that could stand to benefit from sticking Masimah into that story? Okay, so the Malone story. Okay, what, why is that difficult to understand? Moshe is just giving a commandment by Hashem to go take the Jews out of Egypt. And then, seemingly, Hashem tries to kill him. Okay, now it's doubly weird, if not triply and quadruply weird, because if Hashem tried to kill him, isn't it odd that he didn't? Also, what is going on in this story in the first place? So, the way to solve everything is to say it wasn't God that was trying to kill him, it was Mastema, which is exactly what Jubilees does. Now, what other, again, without looking, without looking, what other episode? Once they actually make it, once Moshe and Aaron make it to Mitzrayim, what else happens, I'll give you a hint and then I'll be quiet, in Mitzrayim that is hard to explain? Maybe I'll give you another hint if you're sorry. Say again? Okay, they show up to Paro's throne room and what happens? There's the whole Matah thing, right? And there are these early signs that Moshe is doing and shockingly, the Khartoumim can do it also. What's up with that? Well, how do they have their powers? It must be they're using the powers of Masima. Okay? So Jubilees, tr- struggling with these hard-to-understand, difficult passages, uses Masima to explain these stories. Okay? So to recap, 
In both stories, the Akeda and Makat Bechorot, according to Jubilees, is Masima, who threatens the relationship between Hashem and Avram in one story, and Hashem in Bnei Israel in the other stories. And in both stories, as Chumash itself tells us, there is the near death of the chosen son, the shafting of a sheep or a goat in its stead, and the role of an angel or Hashem in both stories, and they both take place on the same mountain. Ergo, according to Jubilees, what is the origin story of the holiday of Pesach? The story of the Akedah. Okay, so what we've seen is hundreds of years before Chazal, hundreds of years before they picked up on interpretive difficulties in the text and tried to explain them often by connecting through literary associations or thematic associations different stories, the Book of Jubilees is doing this as well. So other examples of this, can anyone think of, besides the Kivshan Ha'esh example, can anyone think of where Chazal take maybe an anonymous biblical character or other stories and connect them? What about, well, I want to hear from you. Other examples of this phenomenon that emerges later. What about another story about Avram? Great. Okay. So Avram doesn't destroy his father's idols, Al Pipshat. There's no such story in his in the, in his story. Who does? Gidon. Okay. Then you have a personal favorite of mine. So has anyone ever learned the Midrash that someone was the king of Ninveh? Someone from an earlier biblical story was the king of Ninveh in Sefer Yonah. Yes. Who was it that made either either got promoted or maybe it was a lateral move to become the king of Ninveh? Paro Melech Mitzrayim. Has anyone ever heard that story? Okay. So there's a rather striking midrash that says that Paro Melech Mitzrayim became the king of Ninveh. Obviously, shockingly ahistorical because these stories take place hundreds of years apart. So what's going on in that story? So... First of all, the textual trigger seemingly for that idea that Paro somehow, despite what we've all learned, survives Kriyat Yamsuf. Does anyone know what biblical text might trigger the possibility that there was a sole survivor of that story? Lo nish arbahem adachad, it says, when the Mitzrim were drowned at the sea. So it's a rather odd phrase that is extremely difficult to translate. There didn't even remain until one, which might open the possibility that how many people did remain? One, namely the only character that we've really known in this entire narrative from the Egyptian side, Paro. So he survived and he became the king of Ninveh. Now, what's the upshot of this, the interpretive upshot of this for Chazal? So I believe it's Uriel Simon who makes the following point. Uriel Simon is a contemporary Bible scholar. He says, what is the most difficult part to believe in Sefer Yonah? Okay, here is a story where there's a storm that seemingly affects only one boat because of one guy. The guy then lives in a fish for three days. But what is actually, to us readers of this beloved text, the most difficult part to understand? The tshuva of the people of Ninveh. Okay, because how many days does it go, take to go around Ninveh, we're told? Three days. How many days does, does Yonah spend in Nineveh? One. So he goes just to be Yotze as least as he can, and he says just one line. And it leads to the greatest Baal Tshuva movement in the history of Tanakh. Okay, so Moshe is schlepping along for 40 years trying to get the Jews to do Tshuva, 
Doesn't work. Yechezkel is rolling around in the dirt. Doesn't work. Yirmiyahu is crying. Doesn't work. And then comes Yonah along, and he says one line, just to be Ote, and everyone does tshuva. Okay, so it could be that Chazal are coming along to say, well, who inspired them to do this tshuva? Their king. Their king who must have known better than anyone else the power of Hashem to punish those who don't listen, and he's who convinced them to do the tshuva. Who is that? Must be Paro Melch Mitzrayim. So that could be the logic behind this rather striking midrash. So from an intellectual history perspective, what we've seen today, I hope, is, is of interest to you to show how this kind of phenomenon that Chazal do all the time starts here in the Book of Jubilees. Now, from a religious perspective, what I think is interesting is that despite this book being from a sectarian Jew whose calendar was different than us, who was not uh, a predecessor of rabbinic Jews like, uh, like we are now, is that the Hashkafa is actually not that different than us. What do I mean? That what are these stories about to Jubilees? They are about avoiding bad demons, having the protection of good angels, as we, as Jews, sacrifice for the sake of the covenant. Okay, the idea being that we sacrifice to do what Hashem wants us to do, while hoping for the protection of good angels and avoiding bad angels. So, does this sound like our day-to-day religious lives? Well, at least, not to pick up my mother again, she's not here, but she does say all the time, bliayin hara poo-poo-poo. Now, I haven't figured out where the poo-poo-poo comes from, but the bliayin hara seems to be trying to avoid the interference of demonic-like figures. Now, raise your hand if on Friday night you say, Baruchuni l'shalom malachay shalom. Okay? So, on some level, we also want the protection of good angels. And I'm not going to embarrass myself by singing, but there is a song by Avram Fried where we say what around the time of Elul? What do we say? It starts with a mem. Machnise. Machnise rachamim. Asking the angels to bring our tefillot to Hashem during the period of tshuva. So the idea that the avoidance of bad angels and the brachot and protection of good angels for those who sacrifice for the name of Hashem is actually something that is very resonant to us. So I hope that our learning today about the origin story of the Chag of Pesach, the holiday of our redemption, brings us one step closer to the ultimate redemption, B'mhera v'yamenu.